Um, so, yeah, I had him read this passage, and uh, it's a doozy, isn't it? Um, I'm nervous, uh, not because he's here, uh, because the text, this is interesting, right? So if you, if you read the last part already, like uh, verses 44 through 50, it's kind of like a summary passage of all the message that Jesus has been preaching throughout his public ministry. Uh, so you had themes of light and darkness, themes of seeing Jesus, therefore you see God. Those are all things that he's already talked about throughout the gospel. And so that's not where we're going to be our main focus. It's a summary sermon on themes that we've already talked through. And so we're going to spend most of our morning in the first half, which uh, I don't, <laughs> like, my holy conviction says yes, and my, my sinful desire says no, just make it easy, right? But this is the value of expositional preaching, going through a book of the Bible. It means you're just not going to get my favorite passages. You're going to get passages from every part of God's Word that say some hard things too. So I hope you're buckled in. You did actually just sing a song where you said, God, show me who you are. Like, show me who you are and fill me with your heart. Like, man, uh, this is going to show us a little bit of who God is, and, and, and you get to decide that, right? Now, the reason why I'm nervous, and if you didn't know this yet, this passage itself, the uh, verses 37 through 43, raise some really, really, really hard questions, very difficult ones, questions that divide churches, questions that have divided denominations, Whew. questions that lead to a lot of conversations that have buzzwords like predestination and free will and and I, I, this, I want to just say real quick that this passage is not particularly about predestination or free will per se. That's not its main theme, though this is a helpful passage to reference in light of that bigger conversation. But this passage is mainly about faith. Can you say faith? Faith. faith. It's mainly about belief and more particularly about unbelief. It's kind of like a theology per se of the unbelief of the Jews. And that's important because that's what John set out to do in writing this whole book. He says at the end of the chapter, or at the end of the book of John, his gospel, why he wrote this book. He said, these signs, though there were so many more that he didn't write about, these signs are written so that you may what? Believe, Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's writing so that you will believe, that you will make the choice to believe. That's his impetus. That's why he included all of this. And so this passage talks about belief. It talks about faith, how we believe, how we can believe, and how we sometimes can't believe. Now, he's going to answer a very particular question that I'm not sure some of us have been privy to yet or thought of, but it's a very obvious, blatant question. Why didn't so many people believe in Jesus? Why were there so many who didn't believe in Jesus? And again, I'm just going to reemphasize, this is a very difficult text. It's very hard. So as we dive into this passage, I need you to commit to me as I commit to you these few things. First, I commit to you to stay united to you regardless if you agree to me or not. I commit to that. I'm not asking for uniformity here. 
I'm asking for unity here because we are one body, the church. And at this issue, this doesn't define the gospel. In fact, this doesn't cancel out the gospel. This is a secondary or tertiary issue, depending on where you put it. This is not a closed fist issue. You know what are? The gospel, Jesus Christ, his deity, his incarnation, his substitution, his restoration and resurrection and our restoration back to God. Those are closed fist issues. You can't agree with me on that. We can't stay united as a church. Oh, but when we're talking about issues like this, where we have some confusion and heartache, these are kind of open-handed issues. And by that, I mean open hand. Let's just keep walking together if we have disagreements on this. So I'm asking for that commitment first. Would you commit to me as I commit to you? Please, we're covenanting to be united as the body of Christ. Secondly, here's the, another commitment that I ask for as we dive into this text. The second one is please don't be theologically rigid. This may poke at some of your beliefs. And the clearest explanation of the text, if it's, if it's conflicting with something in your heart, not the gorilla, something in your heart, and you have issues with it. We are a church that humbles ourselves before a clear explanation of God's word. So we don't redefine this. So my, my invitation to you is to have theological humidity, humility, not humidity. I don't want you to be moist. <laughs> theological humility. We're holding God and his word as higher than our understanding. So so those are some of the commitments because we, again, we're holding this as the highest authority and all that it speaks to. And again, I want to emphasize how we land on this issue doesn't compromise the gospel. That's what we're holding together. Now, I want to put this in context of where we are in the whole gospel of John because uh, we're actually coming to an end of, of one of his first sections uh, in the gospel, right? So, so verses 1 through 18 started off as a prologue, kind of an introduction to Jesus, to the theology about Jesus. And then for a good chunk of John, 12 chapters almost, we have details about Jesus' public ministry. And you can see that if this is the outline of John, you can kind of say that, well, we're coming to an end of Jesus' ministry. You want to know why? Because the next chapter, he's up in the upper room and he's washing their feet, which by the way, stay tuned for next week. That's going to be great. Now, with this, we're, we're, we're ending the public ministry of Jesus. And that's why he has this summary sermon. He cries out this message of the gospel that summarizes his mission, summarizes his message. So we're ending John or Jesus' public ministry here, getting ready to head into his private ministry here. And let's just recall a little bit uh, 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 of his ministry, like how public it was. It was a ministry. He did things that turned the whole region upside down in his day and turned the whole clockwork of the world upside down in our day. From B.C. to A.D., he had a message that transformed and is still transforming people today in his public ministry. If you can remember, John included so many signs and wonders. We're about to walk through them. Think of those things, all of those things. And yet, our verse starts out in verse 37. Even though Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence... They did not believe in him. A summary. They did not believe in response to Jesus. Now, 
the first part of this text, there's kind of three statements that we get from this. First, the Jews did not believe. Can you say, did not? Now, keep in mind, John is pointing out all of the signs that he did. Like, like even though he had performed so many works and wonders in their sight, let's just kind of recall those, right? What was one of the first things that Jesus did miraculously in the Gospel of John? Turned water into wine. What did he do next? Well, the temple, right? That, he, that could have been him raising too. No, actually, he just used his voice. He cleansed the temple. He healed the nobleman's son from a distance. He healed the lame man. He fed the multitude of 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. He healed the blind man in the temple. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Those were his works. But he also carried with those a message, a word. He talked a lot about who he is. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the gate or the door. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. All as he's doing these great miraculous works. And it wins John's heart. It wins the disciples' heart. So many people are flocking to him. So how can it be that so many people rejected Jesus? That's the key question. Like, if you haven't thought that yet, based on how brightly Jesus' ministry shown, that's the next logical question. How on earth could people not believe in Jesus? It's too obvious. How could they reject him? Remember, John said that in the prologue. He said, even though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. His own people didn't even receive him. So you got to think about it. Jesus' ministry, his message, shone so brightly that I was, uh, you could probably just say it, that it was more bright than the sun itself. It was very clear. His words and his works. This is the Son of God. Now, if someone could go outside, let's say you could take somebody outside. I kind of talked about this last week a little bit. Let's take it a little bit step further. Let's say we were to go outside with somebody, point at the sun. And say, do you see that light? Yeah. Do you see the, do you feel the heat from it? Well, yeah. Are you willing to believe that that is the sun who gives light and heat? No. No, I'm not. You would probably, all right, well, we're going to the mental hospital. Uh, something's wrong with your brain. It's obvious. John is asking the same thing. Jesus, the light and the heat of his ministry were overwhelmingly more powerful than the sun. How could so many people not receive him? That's what he's asking. How can we explain this? He's wrestling with that. They did not believe, which gets us into our first uh, quotation from the book of Isaiah. They did not believe because it was foretold they would not believe. So they did not believe because they would not believe. Let's take a look at verse 38. This, their unbelief, their rejection of Jesus, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's, there's two key words there. Who has heard our message? Right? So we, in Jesus' context, that was his word, the gospel that came out of his mouth. 
And then obviously there's this second one, whom, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a key phrase in the Old Testament. It talks about God's miraculous works, particularly in reference to how he released or set free Israel from Egyptian slavery and the plagues and the wonders that he worked there. That was, that was in summary, the arm of the Lord. So, so we have Jesus here, John is, or John is using Isaiah to talk about the message, Jesus' words, and his miraculous signs, the arm of the Lord, the miraculous signs of Jesus. Who have they been revealed to? Now, now this passage, your cross-reference has probably already done it for you. It comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Isaiah 53, verse 1. If you can remember the context, this is when uh, Isaiah is prophesying about this suffering servant who is going to be lifted up and exalted, a.k.a. crucified on a cross, that he would sprinkle uh, the many nations and all the kings would shut their mouths before him, right? Which, again, you hear all, of, uh, all about Jesus there. But in that context, it immediately goes to, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This suffering servant he was going to do all of this work, and yet nobody was going to believe their message. And the works of the Lord that, that, that he was going to do would not be revealed. They wouldn't, they wouldn't understand it. And we go on in Isaiah 53 to find out that what do they do to that suffering servant? He's rejected. He's despised by men. So, so John is using what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 53, what he wrote there, in reference to Jesus, rightly so. He, that was all in pointing to Jesus. And John's saying, who's believed the message of Jesus? Right? Who understands that, that the works that Jesus has done are the arm of the Lord reaching into the created order, doing miraculous works, and the implication of that question is that no one did. Very few did, actually. If you can, again, in Isaiah 53, it turns out no one received this suffering servant. They reject the suffering servant. They oppress him. They afflict him. And then they kill him and they put him in a grave. Now, again, you and I know, looking back on Isaiah 53, that is pointing all the way to Jesus. It's a prophetic word about Jesus. So John is rightly using that quotation in Isaiah 53 verse 1 to reference and explain why they didn't believe when Jesus came because it was prophesied about this suffering servant that they would reject him, that they wouldn't understand his message. So they did not believe because it was foretold they would not believe. But John doesn't stop there. That kind of would have been nice, wouldn't it? If he had just stopped right there, they, well, there's a prophecy. No, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he keeps on going. He says, they did not believe because it was foretold they would not believe because John says they could not believe. They didn't believe because it was foretold they would not believe because they could not believe. Oh, boy. Look at verse 39. 
This is why the Jews, they, were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Here we go. Uh, Just to be clear, the Greek is not vague here. It's very simply translated. All of your translations say either they were not able to or they could not. They did not have the capacity to. They were powerless to believe. It was not within them to believe. They couldn't believe. Why? Isaiah gives the explanation. John uses Isaiah's explanation as his own. Because God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, we know that's a quote from Isaiah. Some of you might not know that that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, it's a passage that is often referred to in our own like devotions to the Lord. It's a passage that's often quoted several times in uh, the New Testament as well as uh, I mean, some of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus quotes it in his ministry in Matthew and Mark when he's explaining why he speaks in parables because when they see, they don't see. When they hear, they don't hear. You can see it in the end of the book of Acts when Paul is talking to religious Jewish leaders and tells, because they were probably wondering, like, why aren't our people receiving this Jesus if he's who he says you say he is? You can see it quoted elsewhere in the New Testament as well. God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, you might be struggling and, and you're trying to reach for things And you might think, well, well, maybe John is just referring to an Old Testament example. Maybe it's just an example he's trying to give here. It's not the actual, like, reality of what's happening in this passage. Well, here's the problem. Isaiah was pointing to Jesus when he said that. Look at verse 41 in chapter 12 in our text. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, a.k.a. Jesus' glory, and spoke about Jesus. So John isn't just referring back to Isaiah as an example in the Old Testament for a mere explanation. John is saying that Isaiah wrote these things in reference to Jesus. Because John was looking back. Isaiah was looking ahead. He was in the throne room. He saw the throne. So I think at this point... Like, no matter how you take this text, right, you can, you can uh, turn it upside down and try to read it backwards. Uh, you can read it right to left. Uh, you can try to shake it and see if it falls out of the text. There's this really hard truth that I don't think we can escape. God hardened hearts and blinded eyes of the Jews to keep them from believing Jesus. That is a very hard truth to swallow, and I know many of you have wrestled with that for a long time. Some of you are just now starting to wrestle it because you're newer to your faith and you're growing and you're wanting to know Jesus more. It's a hard truth to swallow, and, and so you, you, you could do that, right? Like you could, ju- or you could pull what Thomas Jefferson did, 
Uh, we actually, my, my, my family and my brother's family, we went to Monticello yesterday. And I don't know if you guys have heard the Jefferson Bible. That's a legit thing. Uh, what he did was he took the Gospels and he cut out with a razor the passages that he liked. And he got rid of the passages that he didn't. And the ones that he didn't dealt with God's uh, divinity or Jesus' divinity, the miraculous, everything. It just, his Bible, the Jefferson Bible, only held the moral teachings and the examples of Jesus. Not the resurrection, not the ascension, and not this passage. So you could just do that. You can go pick up his Bible. It's 30 bucks. Uh, But I would not advise that to you. Now, Maybe, maybe you're trying to reach and say, well, this was just a one-time instance. Maybe this wasn't something that happens uh, continually or has happened before. Maybe this is just the one time. Well, no, it, unfortunately, it, it's not the only time. We know Pharaoh, right, in that whole disaster scenario thing, right? We find out in the same chapter, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We find out in the same chapter that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And just a few verses later, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So was it Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or was it God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Or even if we were to look at Isaiah's example, in Isaiah 6, right? That whole atoning, his sins are atoned for, and then God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Pick me, Lord, I'll go! The message that God sent Isaiah with was this. Keep on seeing, but don't see. Keep on hearing, but don't hear. It was this passage that Isaiah was told to go to the Israelites. Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. (sighs) You know, later, later on in the book of Isaiah, he complains to God on behalf of Israel. He says, look down from heaven and see from your lofty home, holy and beautiful, where is your zeal and your might, your yearning and your compassion are withheld from me. Yet you are our father, even though Abraham does not know us and Israel doesn't recognize us. You, Lord, are our father. Your name is our redeemer from ancient times. Here's the kicker. Why, Lord, do you make us stray from your ways? You harden our hearts so we do not fear you. Isaiah's wrestling with this. Why? It doesn't make sense. So, so you and I both know all the, the mishap and the trouble that Israel caused the Lord at once he set them free from slavery to Egypt, all the silliness that happened in Israel, how their hearts were in love, and then they hated God, and then they wanted to go back to slavery, and then all this stuff, and they get into the promised land, and they're like, hey, hey, God, and they're like, no, other idols, and they're like, oh, I want God again, no, but now I want my idols, and he's like, all right, I'm sending in an army to exile you, which that's another example. Was it the army who came, or was it God who raised up the army and they came? Yes. Was it God who hardened Israel's hearts or was it Israel who hardened their own hearts? Yes. Now one of the things that is key here is that even in the Gospel of John, there's, there's this understanding that the people have a responsibility to respond to Jesus with faith, with belief. 
right? Uh, they have a responsibility to hear his commands, and they're told to, to keep them. We've got to do it. Oh, and then, and, then, and, then, and then John goes on and says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So was it, was it, was it God or the Jews who hardened their hearts? Yes, completely, totally. The Gospel of John never pits them as conflicting with one another. This idea of moral responsibility with God's sovereignty, they're never at conflict in the Gospel. They're both true simultaneously at the same time. In fact, you can look through all the Scripture and you'll never find them arguing with one another. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. No, they're, they're actually really beautifully intertwined somehow. But it presents this big tension. We have a God who, regardless if he still does it today, what you believe about that, we know at this point the reasons why the Jews did not believe. The Jews did not believe because God hardened, at this time, God hardened people's hearts, blinded their eyes, which kept them from being able to believe upon Jesus. What about free will? What about, what about our, our, our ability to respond? Like, how is that love? How can God fringe on that human right, that fundamental right? How can we have both? How can God be both sovereign over our will and we have our own moral will free, right? Like, I've got an answer for you. Here, here's, here's the answer. I don't know. If you think somebody could figure it out, they would have by now. This has been the conversation for millennia. It's been debated in the church for over 2,000 years. And if you thought I, on a Sunday morning in September of 2023, with no seminary degree, no, nothing impressive about me, was going to come and be able to explain everything to you so perfectly that you left without any tension in your heart today, that's flattering. No way. Yeah. The truth is, if I can tell you where I stand on this, I'm just a compatibilist. They're compatible. Somehow, some way. Both are true. And I, I don't know how, but somehow they're working together. But you think, uh, for, for a lot of us, we're not settled with that. We can't get there. We can't just say, well, I, I don't understand and so we have to feel like we throw one out or the other out in order to preserve the one. We don't like the tension. We don't like the, it, it doesn't make sense. You want to know why? Because I bet you five bucks you're going to go Google this answer, this conversation. You're going to try to find out all sorts of articles and figure out your answer because you don't like the tension. But you and I are, are kind of... As human beings, we're pretty prone to being able to pick which tensions we're okay with not being tensioned about. We can choose our own tensions. Like, for example, uh, the tension of the triune Godhead. How many of you have figured that one whole out completely? And you can explain every part of it to me, how there's one God in existence, three persons in that one God deity. Have you Raise your hand. You figure that out? Oh, I haven't either, <laughs> right? But you're okay with not knowing the full extent of that one because it doesn't affect your rights. 
Did I just say that? Oh, Lord. We're okay with that because it really actually, it really does if you think about it, if you actually follow it to a conclusion. We pick our big issue, like a really big issue like the Trinity and we're okay not understanding it. Or you pick a really, 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 really small issue. Like how many of you know who the Nephilim are? Are you, are you, are you at tension about that? Yeah? Oh, but I don't care. I, I, I don't have to know. Oh, but this, this issue, mm, it, it, it affects me. Just a, a quick point of challenge. Don't you think there ought to be some things about God that you and I can't explain? Joseph just said our God is omnipotent, that he's infinite, and we're not. If you and I could come together and worship a God that could fit in the box of Scott Brud's brain that's like this big, I wouldn't want you to worship him. Because that's a very small God. If he can fit in the context of our understanding, then he's lost his infinitude, which, by the way, is a real word. I'm not making that up. So, 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 I also want to kind of explore the logical conclusions to the end of if we were to take away God's sovereignty over human will to preserve the fullness, the freeness of human will, of free will. It, like if, if, if God's not involved, 0% God, 100% man, in, in being able to have faith in Christ, if that's a hill that you're willing to die on, then I, I need to ask you to be logically consistent and stop praying for people to be saved. You understand Why? If you get rid of God's sovereignty in that issue, he can't influence people. He can't draw them. So stop praying for people to be saved. If, if, if that's the hill that you want to die on, you get rid of God's sovereignty over human will, oh man, it is totally up to you and up to that person. But you got to be careful with that. Because if you take away, in your theology, God's ability to influence a heart away from or toward faith, then that is absolutely devastating news for parents of wayward children. You guys know how many parents in here I pray with on the routine, on the regular, for their kids who have gone off and wandered off from the faith that they worked so hard to train them up in? If God's got no ability to like say, hey, no, actually, I want you back here. If you rid him of that sovereignty, then we can't pray. He doesn't have any, God can't do it. You've rid him of that. Or what, what about those uh, wives who have unbelieving husbands or husbands who have unbelieving wives and they're on the regular trying to pray to the Lord to draw them in to the faith again. If God has no influence over human will at all in the scope of belief or unbelief, then there's no reason to talk to God about people being saved.
But that's not ultimately what this text is pointing to. That's the logical conclusion, one of the logical conclusions that you can go to. But this text is preserving both human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And it's saying that they're both good, right, and true. And I don't know how they work out. Now you uh, can probably get up and protest and say, how is it just then? How is it fair? How, How is it right? How can we have free will and, and, and God's sovereignty be over our will at the same time? Well, Paul actually gives us uh, a, a response that I, that I think is actually directly towards us. What should we say then? This is Romans 9. If there, is there any injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So will you say to me, therefore, why then does God still find fault? For who can resist God's will? But who are you? a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? I don't know about you. My response to this is not anger. My response is humility. My response is lowliness. Because God is God. He's God. We are not. And to be honest, if we were to to run to the, the, the message of the gospel that we hold on to so dearly, the truth is, our will wasn't truly free before Christ, before we were born again. It was not free, it was enslaved to sin. It wasn't free, it was bound. So we didn't truly have a free will before we came to Christ. Romans 6 says that we were enslaved to our sin. We were under bondage to sin. Ephesians 2 goes on and says, no, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Which means the moment that you and I are born again, the moment that you and I come to faith in Christ Jesus and we're born again, our wills are released from bondage, freed up to love and choose God. Guys, this is nothing new to you, though. It's been sung about in our hymns for ages. Charles Wesley, and can it be, verse 4, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We've been singing this for ages. 
The gospel is that you and I, we needed God to come and free us from the bondage of sin and death. And that included our will. So if you are here today, it is because God has gone into the dungeon of your life. He's woken you up. And He's brought you out. Now, let's let's go to the other side of the logical conclusion where let's say we work to preserve both. Where, where we commit to saying what Scripture says, believing what Scripture says, like we're going to say, yeah, we have a moral responsibility. We, are, we, we have a, a will that can choose left and right, up and down, whatever way we want to go. We also have God's sovereignty, which is somehow uh, able to uh, supersede and control our will. If we work to preserve both, then here is the really, really good news. If God can harden hearts, He can soften hearts too. Isn't that the best news ever? Guys, look at what happens in the text. Look at what happens next. Verse 42, nevertheless, many did believe in Jesus even among the rulers of the Jews. Now, John goes on to say, well, of course, they had some disordered loves in their heart, right? They wanted man's praise before God's praise, right? But they believed. They had faith in Jesus. This is awesome news. If God can harden someone's heart, he can also soften that heart. Guys, the gospel doesn't just show that we need God to release our wills and soften our hearts. Deep down, if this is is the way it works, if we're working to preserve both, I think that in the end, you and I really want God to be sovereign over human will. We want that. We need that. Because what he can shut, he can open. What he can make dull, he can illuminate. What he can harden, he can soften. So, so our greatest hope, when, when we have a brother or a sister, when we have a, a, a parent or a, a, a wife or a husband or a kid who has wandered off, has calloused their hearts, or maybe God calloused their I don't know, I don't care. Uh, the greatest joy, greatest hope in that unbelief is that God can still go after them and soften their hearts to his glory. Guys, that's our best hope in instances when we have the wayward son or the wayward daughter. It's God's sovereignty. So, so yes, both free will and God's sovereignty are true and they're right and they're good and they're really good news because if it was all up to you, you'd have every reason to be anxious and not get out of the bed in the morning. But if it's all up to God, then you could just be apathetic and do nothing. No, ah, it's both. Guys, the only way that I can demonstrate this is uh, from my own personal story. My family grew up going to church. My brothers and I would go every morning, every Sunday morning to church. We'd be a part of these summer camps and these winter camps. I would hear the gospel for the first 15 years of my life. I would recite the gospel for the first 15 years of my life. I could tell you, I even got baptized because I could convince the elder in our church that I was saved because I could just recount some truths. 
but I had no love for Jesus in my heart, no actual reception of who he really is. I did not actually receive him for all that he is until one summer camp that I had been to for years and years. It was the one after ninth grade, and the preacher was preaching Romans 1, 14 through 16. Paul says, I am eager to, to go to you who are in Rome, which was a hostile place to the gospel. The gospel was treasonous there. And he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And in that moment, in that one message, I all of a sudden start seeing the worth and the value and the importance and the significance of Jesus. For the first time in my life, even though I had the gospel, even though I knew the components of the gospel, all of a sudden my eyes are opened and I can see the worth of Jesus, the significance of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, the glory of Jesus for the first time after 15 years in being in that environment. I can't help but think that's because that was the day God softened my heart opened my eyes and allowed me to see and it was beautiful now I can also continue on and say that as I've grown up I've learned a little bit more if I erred to one side of divine sovereignty and missed out on will I've grown up in understanding I've got to own my sin I've got to own my responsibility I've got to own the choices that I make God's not to blame for my sinful choices I've grown up in understanding both of these and as you get growing up and understanding these it, it overwhelmingly invades every part of your life and brings all sorts of joy. It brings hope. And it can bring healing. God who hardens hearts can also soften hearts too. Which is our greatest hope, which, which means your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, they are never too far gone. Their hearts are never too callous for the Lord to be like, nope, actually, let me change that. And if you're here today, which obviously you are here today, if you're trusting in Jesus because you made a choice to follow him, it's also because God has invaded your dungeon, brought you out, and rescued you from the bondage of the night.